instead of just saying, well, there's no silver bullet for this, or there's no one, one stop shop for that, or there's no cure for this. I've been thinking on that. Sometimes there is, sometimes there is a single thing and, or one incredible thing. So something I've been telling people recently related to health is that the bicycle is a miracle drug. It, to cure us from a multitude of physical and mental health issues. And the top 10 causes of death in the US can all be reduced by being a little bit more active. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Acton Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Simmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your honored host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is December 10th, 2020, and this is our 51st episode here in season one of the Active Towns podcast. And I'm delighted to share a recent conversation I had with Andy Baino of Richmond, Virginia. Andy has a professional background as a classically trained transportation engineer, but has gradually transitioned over the years into a storyteller, consultant, and the host of both the Urbanism Speakeasy and How We Get Around podcasts. But first, before we dive into that discussion, please allow me a brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you also very much for your amazing support. To learn more about Active Towns, access some of our other content, and make a donation, just head over to our website, that's activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. You'll see the blue donate button on the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included a direct link in the show notes. Also, if you're not already doing so, please consider following us on our social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, that's enough for this preamble. Let's get this conversation with Andy Baino rolling. Andy, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, John. I'm thrilled to be here. I was like trying to remember back it was a long time ago i was on your podcast this urbanism speakeasy podcast and i want to say that was back in 2013 does that sound about right that sounds right yes and it was at a congress for new urbanism so bring us up to speed that was seven years ago what's up with you these days in the realm of podcasting, and then we'll we'll talk about you know career and, and some of the projects that you're working with. Yeah, um, those things overlap. Uh, I <laughs> I have this. Uh, I mean, I think it's I think it's fun. I'm not going to say it's a curse. This overlap of my personal interests overlap the work that I do. So I recently rebranded. I came up with a new idea of urbanism speakeasy. So I'm doing two podcasts now. One is focused on storytelling and marketing and the other is focused on uh, mobility or and specifically the future of mobility. So that podcast is called How We Get Around. And that touches on autonomous technology, smart cities, bike share, scooters, uh, just good old fashioned walking because we humans keep being born with legs. It's, it's just, where's mobility going? And then I'm fascinated with how do we, how do we adapt with emerging technology? Urbanism Speakeasy, I'm focusing more on the storytelling and marketing because I realized over the years that that's where we in what I all call boring industries, that's where we fall down all the time. 
we have this problem where we, we don't know how to communicate in plain language the work that we do. So that's the emphasis there. And both of these shows have short episodes. My, my intent is that each and every episode focuses on one narrow topic that you can take with you. Yeah, I listened to a whole suite of them uh, out in the garden uh, the other day, and it's it's really cool. They're all bite-sized. They're about three minutes in duration, and you get right to it and, you know, and just kind of boom, boom, boom. They go fast. It's it's a really neat, um, you know, process and, and product. How did you sort of evolve into that particular format? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I'm not sure I have a good answer for it because you're the first person to ask me. W- one problem I do have is that words never stop falling out of my face. Um, so I need to have something for that. Twitter is one mechanism. LinkedIn is a softer mechanism. Um, I love podcasts. I absorb podcasts. I like video. I like making them. So I knew I've got to keep doing something related to podcasting. And frankly, just setting up interviews, um, like what you're doing, long form interviews and scheduling them was so time consuming that I had to put it on the back burner. Doing something that's more focused and it's just my voice and shorter allows me to crank episodes out faster. And I also, while I do absorb long form content and I'm going to start making more again on a, in a separate format, not as these, these two podcasts I described, how we get around in urbanism speakeasy. I, I was thinking about some of the photography podcasts that I listen to. And I so appreciate when there's just one tight emphasis and I can, maybe I listen to five in a row. Maybe I just listen to one and I have some takeaway that just sits in my head. And so that's what I've been doing. I've been kind of forcing myself to do what I tell others to do, to, to narrow down your focus on whatever you're trying to explain to somebody. Maybe there's an anecdote, but just one thing at a time. Fantastic. That's, that's great. You know, and it's such great advice too to, to be able to, you know, try to hone in and focus and, you know, be, have clarity around that. And I I thought about this too, when I was listening to uh, the series of, of those shorter podcasts and, and one of the things that is, you know, it's sort of an, an older saying, I I can't remember it. It might've been Mark Twain or who knows, may have said something like this, but uh, it basically, to paraphrase it, it's it's much more difficult to <laughs> produce something that's really, really short because you have to like really edit it down and think about, be very judicious with that. But you just said that you're able to turn them around much faster. Is that is that something through experience that you've been able to get to that? Or are you just like really, really focused that when you sit down to record, you've kind of got it really constrained and and scripted so that you're not in that situation where you're having to come back and like really chop, uh, you know, edit out a whole lot. Right. So what I, what I do and what I recommend to others, whatever the topic is when it comes to podcasting is to do it in some form of batching. So maybe that's just two ideas. Maybe it's five ideas at the same time and write down your thoughts, either handwritten or type them up, just get your thoughts on paper and then look at them and then read them out loud. And when you read them out loud, just for starters, ask yourself, 
do I make any sense what, what I just wrote? Or, or is this, should this idea stay inside of my head? And if it does make some sense, then, then start looking at it again and say, okay, how can I peel away the jargon of my industry and say this in a way that my next door neighbor or you know, any random person, the cashier at, at the grocery store could understand uh, what it is that I'm describing. Not that jargon is inherently evil, but it's often distracting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your background and your career path and, and how it has now evolved into what you just had described is, is to where it's it's sort of melding between this content that you're producing and, uh, and and the type of work that you're, that you're doing right now. So let's, let's go back and and tell us about Andy. Uh, What was your, your background and training and where were you working and, and how did you come to, you know, this particular role that you're in now? My background is I was trying to get out of elementary school as fast as I could while I was elementary school age, just to be clear, not an adult going to elementary school, looking at the like staring into space, thinking this is hard enough just getting through third grade. I got fourth, fifth, sixth, like, like counting all the fingers. And then I'm supposed to go to college and all just always be in a school. And then I'm supposed to go find a job and sit in a job all day. So I had this urge to get through school by path of least resistance. So I would figure out ways to make people laugh so I could be in the group with kids that would help me understand things that I didn't understand. Uh, And one of my, to this day, I tell people one of my work mentors, career mentors was Mrs. Jones, my third grade teacher who wrote at the back of my report card, Andy needs to learn to use his sense of humor for good and not for evil. And so (laughs) I, that is, that is the trajectory of the next many years, uh, trying to figure out how to interact with people where I can hook them with some bit of information, hopefully with a smile on their face, and then and either teach them something that I've just learned or help them see something differently that they don't already see. So this comes to like our type of work with advocacy promoting a certain thing, persuading people, wanting to persuade people to live an active and healthy lifestyle. It, so that's, that's kind of my mindset around it. Now, I'm not, you would think, I guess, if I, if I just simply said that, that I worked for 20 years as a teacher. Um, I did not. I, my parents helped me buy a civil engineering degree and I ended up in the transportation world, which was a shock to me because as a Gen X teenager, I like most other of my most of my peers would say, well, my dad works in transportation. He works for the US DOT, Department of Transportation. So of course I'm not gonna do anything in transport. Uh, and then as the years went by, our career paths got closer and closer. So I started as a traffic engineer. Then I started studying or shifting more towards quarter studies and sort of long range planning for transportation, environmental impact statements land development, land use patterns. So I did, these were things that I didn't study in school. I didn't know about the history of land use or how we as, as people uh, built the stuff around us or organized stuff around us, zoning. That None of these things meant anything to me. But I, over the years, I was learning about them through being a transportation engineer and a transportation planner. And then I got to the point where I was focused a lot on just by, I, I was focused on 
safer infrastructure? How do we build things that reduce car crashes? How do we how do we build things that you know traffic engineers would say is safe? And this came around. This was a, a big turning point. I, well, it wasn't a. It was more of a turning period because I, I would not say this is a night and day sort of thing. But I was asking questions at work like a little child, like a three-year-old maybe saying, why, why? Like, not because I knew any better, but why don't we analyze roundabouts? Should we do this? Should we do that? Do I assume, what, how wide should the travel lane be? Is the car lane 12 feet, 10 feet? What do I put? And the more I asked questions like, why do we do this? The answers I got back were often or generally, well, we do this because that's just the way it's done. So go do it. And, you know, I didn't have any kind of, formal education behind me about a, a better alternative, like lane width, for example, why you may want 10 and a half foot wide lanes rather than 12 foot lanes. I didn't have any awareness of parking policy impacts on traffic, but I didn't like this answer of we do this because it's a way it's been done. You will keep doing this because your fathers and your forefathers have done this before you. That doesn't sit well with me. Uh, perhaps because I have issues with authority, but just it didn't seem right. So my career path through transportation has been characterized by that asking why, why, why do we do this? And then learning a ton along the way. So at the same time that I was learning and asking questions about transport, I just happened to like marketing and advertising. And I didn't at the years ago, I didn't see uh, any kind of overlap, but as I would absorb biographies about advertisers from the 50s and 60s, I kept seeing these patterns come out about human behavior and human psychology and why people behave in the ways they do, why customers will, will gravitate toward one brand and not another, uh, why grocery stores were organized in the way they were. And I, it kept hitting me over and over again. Maybe it's, it takes re repeated hits because I'm not the brightest, perhaps. I would see these these lessons that advertisers and marketers have been studying for decades, there's a direct application in everything I do with traffic engineering, with transportation planning, with trying to figure out why a community is rejecting bike share, why more people aren't riding the bus, you name it. If it had to do with mobility and urban planning, I, I saw all these opportunities with psychology and marketing and advertiser, uh, advertising, uh, just that mindset that we as planners and engineers of space and infrastructure, we're just completely oblivious to. So that's where in, in recent years, and especially now in 2020, where I see focusing my attention is it's that sweet spot of storytelling and the built environment. I want to help people get the right stories in the right form in front of the right audiences. Love it. And, you know, and it sounds like you, you, you know, you had the opportunity to do that traditional transportation engineering career path for a, a little while. And as I recall, you were also on sort of the cutting edge of micromobility for a while too, right? So in hindsight, people, friends of mine who are also in, in uh, mobility will uh, give me a little grief about my career path and scratch their head about it. It seemed, in hindsight, it looks crystal clear to me because as I learned new things and got interested in new things, I would pursue those things. So my, my draw years ago to walkable, bikeable infrastructure, 
had nothing to do with school. I mean, like I mentioned, I, I studied civil engineering. It had everything to do with, I just want to be able to walk across the street. I should be able to walk across the street. My kids should be able to ride their bikes to the swimming pool. Why is this not possible? Oh, I know why, because I know all about the dirty secrets of transportation planning and traffic engineering and uh, land use planning. So, yeah, so as I've as I've learned new things and, and my I guess my interests and energy have been channeled in different directions that that has led to bike share and things like mobility as a service, which is really just the, the fancy way of saying a digital platform where you can plan book and pay for your travel all on a single platform. So that's that's an example of where I see embracing technology to help people move around because it's it's not about the tech, it's about helping us get from here to there. So mobility as a service is, is one of those newer things that, that I'm fascinated by and very interested in. Connected and autonomous vehicles are another one where it's unpopular in some of our circles with walkable, bikeable advocacy, but I see that kind of technology as a way to really accelerate walkable, bikeable infrastructure. Yeah. It's always a challenge when you just, you know, step back and realize just how connected everything is to everything else. And so uh, as you were just, you know, going through and talking about, you know, that that sort of winding path and how, you know, things kind of pop up, but it just you did keep coming back to one thing, and that was the built environment. And because ultimately, whether we're talking about bike share or whether we're talking about micromobility, whether we're talking about a future with autonomous vehicles, we still need to deal with that built environment. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, (laughs) when it comes down to it, we've got our two feet. Is it walkable? And, you know, do we have, you know, is it safe and inviting for people to partake in active forms of mobility. And so that's one of the biggest challenges. Now you you said something there because you really honed in on the storytelling that helps support the built environment changes. Talk a little bit more about that. So what I have learned over the years and what I, what I like to encourage others to think about is, is what does it mean that story is important to us? What does it mean that anecdotes are important to us? And I don't, I'm blanking on who said this. I'm not the originator, so I'm not going to claim credit. But this idea of inquiry over information, meaning ask questions, not just for the sake of asking questions, but ask questions rather than just saying, here's what you need to know. And and when I, I hear something like that, it really resonates because I've seen it over and over again in just, I'll say, boring work, like getting people out to getting the general public to come talk about a citywide master plan or a transportation plan or something like that. Who cares about it? No, most people don't care about that stuff. So how start asking questions around what is it that we're doing here? What's our what's our job on this study? What will it do to these people's lives? And it's it's really trying, it's asking questions around the pain point of the different people you're trying to reach. So if I'm talking to a friend who's an architect or a planner, and they're trying to think through ways to get people to come participate in a meeting that impacts their life, because this is, they're talking about restructuring the built environment around them, for example, then 
I'll encourage them to think through what is, what are the pain points of the people you want to come? If it's neighbors, what are their pain points? Maybe their pain point is something like it takes them 30 minutes just to get to the office and the office isn't that far away. Or maybe a pain point is I want my kids to be able to ride their bikes to the pool or to school, but they can't. It's just very simple things like that. Um, Maybe the, maybe a pain point is I'm a senior citizen. My doctor prescribed walking. I can't get the prescription filled because there's no infrastructure. I walk out of my house and there's no sidewalk or it's they're broken sidewalks or disconnected. So after you think through what are the pain points, then What's the painkiller? What do they need to hear about as the painkiller? So that's just one way of coming up with just ideas around storytelling where storytelling is not simply or shouldn't be just, here's what you need to know about my company or here's what you need to know about the city's comprehensive plan process. That, that stuff's never gonna entice anyone. The storytelling that's gonna hook people is around a problem that they can relate to and they're, they're begging for like, if it's a pain, they want the painkiller. They're going to lunge for the painkiller. This is not just about vitamins and having, you know, saying, come on, John, take your vitamins. It's good for you. One, one example around this, uh, just this idea of storytelling in the built environment is um, about five years ago, I, or not the storytelling side necessarily, but the inquiry over information. I was giving a talk to people that I would say are very pro- Uh, walkable, bikeable infrastructure. And I was thinking ahead of that talk, how do I provoke this audience? Because they're they're generally designing good infrastructure, or what I would say is objectively good infrastructure, because it's safer than car-oriented infrastructure in that they're designing cities and counties and suburbs, colleges, whatever. They're designing infrastructure to make it safe and comfortable and convenient to walk or ride bikes. So how do I give a talk to them that provokes in some way? And my idea, again, this is five years ago. My idea was, what if there was no state, like capital S state, government agency telling you, this is how you shall build your stuff. This is how you shall build and how you shall organize your land uses. So I wrote this talk called Dress Like an Architect, Think Like an Anarchist. And it turns out I wrote this talk five years too soon because I'm (laughs) now in 2020 with all the uh, stuff that we're watching on the news. I'm seeing this question come back. And this this is not a way of making light what we see around the country in um, in the term anarchy being thrown around. But it's it's getting people to think on this word anarchy. If anarchy simply means the absence of the state, then what would you do if there was no state government or a federal government, if there was no government agency saying you shall put all your houses over here and you shall put all your shops over there and you shall put all your schools way down the road over there and you shall do this traffic study that's going to make your roads wider. If that wasn't there and, and just average people had to decide how to build their stuff. What would they do? And so that's the type of question I, I encourage people to ask of themselves. How would we build this stuff? And I think you, you look through recorded history and even pre-recorded history to get some answers. Well, we build stuff in clusters. We would be pretty close to each other in part because we didn't have high-speed vehicles to get us from place to place. So neighborhoods were pretty compact. And that's not to say that we should just build like we did in a prehistoric era, but it is... To, 
to provoke people to think if you weren't forced by rules and regulations to, to spread everything out, how might you build? And so that's, I think that's the kind of thing, not only that's good for us as people who work in the built environment and it's directly related to storytelling, but it's also helpful to engage the average person who might think, does it really matter if I come out to this meeting about a a zoning ordinance? Well, Well, yeah, it actually does. It spreads everything out and it makes your life horrible and you don't even know it. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, and and uh, I, I have to ask, how, how did they respond? It was, uh, the, the talk was in, the response was exactly what I would say is the best possible scenario, which is half the audience had eyes like this and half of the audience was laughing and tweeting. So that's my idea of a successful presentation um, when, when you have a somewhat polarized reaction. If yeah. everybody's just... Oh yeah, that was nice. Then I'm going to feel like I'm swimming in a sea of mediocrity and I'm, I'm not interested in that. So you mentioned that uh, you probably presented that about, uh, uh, you know, five years early, given our current situation, if you were to do a provocative speech and presentation today, what would you present? The core is still, it's that same question. I want people to ask this question more than ever um, because I think one of the one of the positive outcomes that's coming from just some of the very terrible things that we've seen in, you know, whether it's it's police abuse or it's military abuses or it's uh, just, I mean, traffic violence, uh, frankly, there are different forms of abuse that it, for whatever reason, these things and in 2020 are happening at the same time in a way that people are open to ideas that are other than they've seen in the past several years, because we haven't had, we just haven't had these types of things happening at the same time. So I think it's a fascinating time to ask a question like, if there was no entity or group of large entities forcing you to plan and design certain ways or forcing certain types of regulations, how might you, how might you live? How might you design your stuff? And, and this goes also to, you know, technology related to transportation. How might you pay for transportation? How might systems be linked? How might the, the train and the bus and bike share systems, how might they all be grouped together? And how might entities pay for these? Who would pay for these? And these are all, these aren't new questions around who pays for this stuff. But people, I think now more than ever, are willing to consider options that we haven't had in 2019 or 2018 or, you know, the last 100 years. When we return after this brief break, Andy proposes how we can better engage our community members, what role persuasion should play in built environment transformations, and how tactical urbanism installations can help people experience potential design changes. But first, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe to and rate it on your preferred podcast listening platform. And while you're at it, please help me grow the audience by telling a friend or sharing your favorite episode within your social media and or professional networks. Thank you. Okay, that's all for this quick intermission. Let's get back to our discussion with Andy Baino. Address a little bit how we have these discussions, not with professionals, but with just the general population. 
Well, if I was to describe how we have them today with the general population, I would say it's it's me saying jargony, 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 and it's you as the average person going just drifting off. It's the Tuesday night at the middle school gym or cafeteria, uh, walking around an empty area, pointing at boards, putting a post-it note on something. It's just, there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of, um, I guess, deeper meaning. Like, why am I here? Unless I'm really angry about something and I need to come out and yell at someone. That's that's been my experience and that's what I see and hear from others. Usually people that work professionally in, you know, architecture, planning, engineering, these AEC, we call it architecture, engineering, construction industry. I think most people feel kind of, well, that are involved in these outreach efforts, I should say, feel a bit helpless because if you speak up too loudly, then either you risk the client saying, well, you need to get with the program and just do this. This is what we want. And then, you know, potentially lose out on the future contract or your boss is going to say, what are you doing? Nobody else is doing Everybody does it this way. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to keep doing it. Just head down. And that encourages this ongoing complacency and really the planners and engineers, both as people groups, even though they often are at odds publicly as people groups, very similar. They just want to follow the rules, do things right and not stand out. And that can be good when your, your goal is a walkable, bikeable place, or it's, you know, it's something that's good for the community. It's not something that's purposefully separating all the land uses and making it really challenging for lower or middle income people to get around without purchasing a car. But if you can't, if you don't have the freedom to, to ask fundamental questions of people, then we're just going to keep planning and designing the same old terrible stuff. So in the, in the outreach mode, I think, What's really important is being able to ask some of these pointed questions and just, and sometimes it's ask, and this is the hardest part for me, ask a question and then be silent, like zip a lip and let people just talk. That can, if we, if you listen to someone and I, you know, this as an interviewer, if you listen enough to somebody, then rather than just reading off of a sheet of, okay, you stop talking. Okay. I'm going to ask the next question, but you can re you can react to a person's issue. So you can, even though they might not say, John, my pain point is that my senior citizen parents need to walk more, but there's, there's no sidewalk connectivity in their neighborhood. I don't know what to do. They might not say it exactly like that. They might say, my pain point is I got to come out to this meeting. Like they, they just, they may be cryptic. They may, they may not have their attention focused in the right way. If you ask questions, then you can get that kind of information out of people. I think that's more the direction that we, that we need to be as, as engagers. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's a really, really good point. One of the things that, that sort of popped into my head as you were sort of describing that was some of the changes that have been happening in the past decade or so to to do a better job of uh, facilitating the storytelling and facilitating the transfer of knowledge. And what I'm going for here is more from a, a practical standpoint, you know, of, of where people can actually get their their hands on something 
And one of the things that that I think has been just tremendously helpful for us in trying to better communicate and give people an opportunity to really truly experience what we're talking about, like just use this as, as an example, a, a protected bike lane and be able to say, you know, that means something to us because we speak in that jar- that language and that's that jargon that we were talking about. But for someone out in the in the general community, they'd be like, I think I know what you mean, but I don't really, you know, and and what's this crazy beast? A parking protected bike lane? What what do you mean by that? Right. So it the thing that one of the, the wonderful advances that I think has has come up is this whole concept of tactical urbanism is being able to lighter, quicker, cheaper, put something down, give the community an opportunity to experience it and then have an opportunity to leverage some storytelling and and do what you were just saying is really truly listen to them as they reflect back their how they feel about it. Talk a little bit about that. That's the one that really pops up in my mind. You can yeah. riff off of that one and go deeper than than what I just did at the surface level. Or if you think of another um, uh, another example that has emerged, dive into that. Yeah. So. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about a very another very important issue around um, engagement and and storytelling, and that is there's a difference between information and persuasion, and that's painfully obvious. I know, but it needs to be said. And here's a here's where planners and engineers, and I'm I'll lump myself in both of those categories. We just miss the mark repeatedly we focus on information, we focus on education, and we don't touch persuasion because we, and I'm talking about the people group, this industry, we think persuasion is a bad thing that's, or it's bad for us. It's, it's supposed to be for an advocacy group or politicians get into persuasion or, you know, somebody else. It's always somebody else's job. Interesting thing though about planners and engineers is they sign if they're licensed, they have this code of ethics and they, they have slightly different terminologies around this, but their, their number one charge is to serve the public interest. Well, if you have two options for your, your master plan or your quarter design, your street, you're, you're redesigning a street or a, a park or a plaza. If you're a planner or an engineer and your number one charge is to serve the public interest, what happens when you have two design options and one of them is dangerous, and the other one is clearly safe, at least compared to, the, to each other. Well, you, you have to persuade for the safe one. If you're, persuade, if you're just simply giving information, then how are you doing your job to serve the public interest? You're, you're just taking this easy path of, well, I'm just gonna give some data points, and then if they choose the right one, then I'll go ahead and take credit for it and say, wow, yeah, that was my, my plan, my design. How'd you like that? And then if they choose the wrong one, if they choose the dangerous one, then you can say, well, you know, we put it up for a vote. It's not up to us. It's, it's up to the community to vote on, on what they want to take. So this is the deeper issue there is that if you present enough data that a person is going to come to the correct answer, How we still think this after elections year after year after year is beyond me. I mean, in 2016, two different voters would go to the poll with the exact same information 
One says, obviously, this candidate named Hillary is the correct choice. Another voter would go with the exact same data and say, obviously, Donald is the correct choice. The amount of data is not going to change this issue. We have we have too much information that's not persuasive so that where planners and engineers need to focus their attention or again, anybody dealing with the built environment, it's learn some about persuasion. And I'm not suggesting that everybody become an overnight persuasion star, if that was even possible, but it's something to be very aware of and then start learning how to do it. Start learning why it is that advertisers, advertisers work the way that they do. Why is it that certain brands have the reputation that they do, that they're so recognizable? How do, how do we feel this urge to like one type of thing and dislike another type of thing? A lot of it has to do with persuasion. So I, I think, you know, along back to your, your um, comment about protected bike lanes, this is the sort of thing that if, if I, as the planner or designer of this system, if I'm just giving data, then I'm saying things like, well, on a street that has 8,000 average daily trips and a street width of 44 feet and a curb height of whatever, and I just start going down, I'm giving accurate data, but it's not going to persuade anyone. They're just hearing information and then they'll decide, they'll have to think on their own. Okay. What would it be? All right. He said 12 feet, carry the one divided by curb. You know, you're making them do this crazy um, advanced math and it has nothing to do with the human experience. So persuasion is what does this person need to hear to move them towards? Yes. How can I get them to say yes to the correct choice? And that is an unpopular point of view, believe it or not in, (laughs) in our space, in the built environment, because we, we have in our minds that, both options, or th- if there's three options, that all the options are good options. But that's, that's clearly not true. Uh, if you're, if you're going to look into any data at all and consider what before and after scenarios mean, not every design option is a good design option. I mean, probably the most obvious example of this is in transportation. There's always the default of no build. And the no build scenario is, what if we do nothing? That's always one of the options. And then you have different types of build scenarios. So it's, and I'm not suggesting that a no build is, is a good or the bad option. My point is, if you have a variety of build options and an option that is no build, do nothing, obviously one of them is not going to be a good idea. If, if, all, if it's always a good idea to leave nothing to do no build, then we wouldn't, why would we even design something new? If it was always a good idea to design something new, why would we say we might not? So it's just, it's being aware of these kinds of things is the starting point. And then the next step is, okay, if there's some, there's some judgment in here, if I need to place some engineering judgment in this, then I need to help the community understand just how deadly this street design could be. It's the if-then kind of thing. If we design a six-lane corridor and the, the car lanes are all 12 feet wide, and then we just put a white piece of, or a white paint stripe on the edge and call it a bike lane, uh, I need to persuade the community that that's a terrible idea. 
And the only way I'm going to do that is to acknowledge that that is, in fact, a terrible idea. And that, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, that's really challenging for people because one, they're either afraid of the client saying, hey, no more work for your company. Or two, they're afraid of their boss saying, hey, no work for you as an individual. Yeah. And I I think that um, one of the things that I'm so excited about with what we've seen transpire over the last five years and how cities are starting to embrace the concept of tactical urbanism, giving people an opportunity to get their hands around something and be able to actually feel it and experience it is, and it's just sort of, it's, it's even like a parking day, international parking day, right? It's like, if, if we can try to reimagine what that space is for and, or could be, then it, it's like, oh, I get what you're talking about now. You know, it's not data being thrown at me. It's something I can feel. I can, I can ride my bike down this pop-up infrastructure and say, oh, I get it now. I, it really does. And so it's, yeah. it's, that, it's that side of storytelling that because one of the things, even if, we, even if we step back from just throwing data at people and we try to just imagine if you, <laughs> it's like, well, even better than that is give people the opportunity to actually experience it. You know, it's mind blowing for a lot of people because then they're like, oh, I get it. Now. Right. I feel it. I, it's, And then then you start tapping into what you were talking about, which is an, an emotional response. And you mentioned it with the, the node build option, because one of the things that we see in a lot of communities is that change just seems so fear inducing for them that they're just like, no, don't don't change anything. This is what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Even if current conditions are, by the data standards, considered to be dangerous, you know. Yeah, it's true, and I mean, it's and it's not easy. It's complicated because even in the no build scenario, it could be that a two lane road, one lane in each direction, should forever, forever, and always be a two lane road, one lane in each direction. In other cases, a no build means this house is going to fall apart. Or this this building on the um, university campus is gonna fall down. We've got to do something. So it, it's not it's not as easy as saying you always need to do something. But you're right. Having something that's temporary, um, short term, uh, often quite cheap to just do and say, hey, here's what it could look like. We're gonna shut down all the downtown streets. Uh, here's what it's gonna be like. Or I mean turn it into a parade and even out in uh, if you've got a couple of really big fat arterials out in um, in the suburban area figure out a way with the with the politicians to temporarily shut that stuff down I mean maybe it's just one fat road gets shut I've seen this done in Los Angeles if it can be done in Los Angeles it can be done just about anywhere I mean I know often people think of Los Angeles as a city uh, it lots of Los Angeles looks an awful lot like the rest of USA when it comes to the strip development and the the four and six and eight line roads. So yeah, absolutely looking for ways where you can have people experience that stuff is huge. That's absolutely part of the persuasion. And then even it, it helps people think also to the purpose of the things like the why behind it. Building new bike lanes is not for rich white kids to be able to ride a fixie bike. The, the idea is 
to protect human life, human life. So if you, if you can get people experiencing it, riding on a bicycle in the open area and being able to see, oh yeah, I see. Oh, I forgot about that building. I thought that's an interesting, that's interesting architecture. I like that. I might live down here. People see stuff differently from, from the saddle of a bike than they do. And then it's another, another way of looking at the importance of this kind of stuff. The why behind it is health. I mean, we see every once in a while, we'll see a news story about the connection between physical and mental health and, and how we live just sitting in a car. This is something that I've been a little ranty about recently on, on Twitter is just, is this connection of health and infrastructure? It's, I mean, one thing I've been telling people recently or reminding them is instead of just saying, well, there's no silver bullet for this, or there's no one, one stop shop for that, or there's no cure for this. I've been thinking on that. Sometimes there is, sometimes there is a single thing and, or one incredible thing. So something I've been telling people recently related to health is that the bicycle is a miracle drug to cure us from a multitude of physical and mental health issues. And the top 10 causes of death in the U S can all be reduced by being a little bit more active. So I say it's the bicycle is a miracle drug. So go hug your local drug dealer. If you have a tactical urbanism project that gets people out riding on a bike, then that's fantastic because then they'll start thinking, oh, okay, my doctor said I'm supposed to ride a bicycle. If we had some safe routes to be on, then yeah, I'd, I'd ride a bike. Yeah, yeah. And and that's, you just hit it right there on the head is that if I had the safe place to do this, the safe infrastructure to do this, and the that whole concept of the magical windows that get opened when you have a safe and inviting protected infrastructure of a mobility lane it's like it's it's for the bike it's for the person on the skateboard it's for the person that's on a, a different type of micro mobility device it's like it, it's so multifunctional it's a people it's a people mobility lane that just you know draws people out because they're like oh i feel safer here i can actually right. you know do what inherently as a human i know i need to do and that is be physically active because you're absolutely right the disease the disease that you know comes up chronic diseases uh inactivity is a primary risk factor in every single one of our uh, major chronic diseases that we have so good stuff hey all right so anything that we haven't covered any last topics that uh, you want to go into before i uh, tee up the very last question for you. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to open the, uh, box of helmets on you at the very end. I'll just tell people <laughs> do what I do and use hair gel. That's strong enough to protect against the wind. <laughs> that's great. If somebody who's listening or watching this is inspired by this discussion and this dialogue and they, they're like, you know, I want to make a difference in my community. What do I do? Any advice that you would give that person? Yes, I have no shortage of opinions on this, but I'll keep it brief. Write, publish, repeat. That does, uh, that does so many things. It, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying if you feel like you're a writer, then you should do this. Whoever you are, however frequently you write, write, publish, repeat. This gets ideas from up here onto paper or onto a screen and you'll get more and more comfortable with articulating both what's going on inside of you and what you're observing. So 
maybe this takes the form of a journal. Maybe it takes the form of street photography and writing some captions. Maybe it takes the form of jokes. It can take all kinds of forms, video, but do something that involves putting your words out into space. So I I think even the follow-up is usually, the follow-up rejection is usually, what will people think? It's that back to the future uh, when Marty McFly is confronting his dad and, and, uh, and his dad says, well, what if people don't like it? I just don't know if I could take that kind of rejection. And Marty sees himself and his dad is that kind of pushback. And what I say is, even if you keep this stuff for the time being in a drawer in your desk or in an unpublished folder uh, on your computer, do it anyway. And then when it comes time for somebody to have a conversation with you about the built environment in some way, or about whether or not electric bikes are good or not, or how good they are, you'll be able to articulate some of these ideas a lot better. So. I'll end my rant there. Write, publish, repeat. I love it. That's great. What's a good place for folks to uh, catch up with you? Um, Do you have a website? Come find me at andybaino.com and you'll get the, that's the gateway for everything. It's the gateway drug to more Andy. And be sure to follow Andy out on uh, Twitter. His uh, Twitter handle is at Baino, and that is B-O-E-N-A-U. Andy, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you here on the Active Towns podcast. Thanks so much, John. Thank you all so very much for tuning into this episode. I certainly hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Andy. Please be sure to check out his two podcasts, The Urbanism Speakeasy and How We Get Around. Links provided in the show notes and Andy has passed along some fun black and white photos which are displayed on the landing page for this episode. One final reminder before we part ways, if you're in a position to do so, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns so I can keep bringing you this content. Just go to activetowns, again that's plural, .org and click on the blue donate link on the top right corner of the page. Any amount really helps. Thank you. Okay, that's it for episode number 51. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.